Welcome to the Well Community Jokes. Good morning, everybody there in Benbrook. Uh, thank you so much to your pastor, Kevin, for inviting me to come to you this way. I sure wish that we could be together in person. I would love to uh, meet you and uh, chat with you before and after your gathering, but this is going to have to do, and uh, our church, like yours and so many others, are meeting this way by Zoom, and so we're just grateful for, for this kind of technology. In our country of Canada, sexual exploitation happens uh, all over the place. Many people think that it happens only in large metropolitan areas, but I'm here to tell you that it happens in large towns, uh, big, big cities, and rural areas. I live in Oakville, so not too far away from you, and police here tell me that between Trafalgar Road on the QEW and Guelph Line in Burlington on the QEW, so that's not a very big stretch of highway, there are at least 60, six zero uh, girls and women being sold for sex every single day in the, hot, in the hotels that line that stretch of highway. Along with that kind of exploitation, there will also be kids, teenagers, uh, girls who are exchanging sex to have some of their basic needs met, like a place to stay, food to eat, uh, just their basic needs. The form of sexual exploitation can look uh, really different, but it is always an exploitation of someone's vulnerabilities. So in a really quick nutshell, you know, who are we, what do we do? Well, Defend Dignity is a, a ministry of the National Office of the Christian Missionary Alliance, of which your church is a part. And uh, simply, we exist to end all forms of sexual exploitation in Canada. So that's everything on the spectrum from prostitution, human trafficking, all the way down uh, to pornography. And our work is focused in three key areas. They all start with A. Advocacy, we advocate with all levels of government, municipal, provincial, and federal uh, for better laws and policies on this issue. Right now, uh, we're doing a lot of work with the Federal Ethics Committee who have called uh, the executives of MindGeek, which is the largest pornography conglomerate of different porn sites in the world. It's headquartered in Montreal. They uh, have been called before the Ethics Committee because it's been exposed that they have uh, numerous uh, videos on their website of uh, child sexual abuse material and also of non-consensual images. And so they were called to testify just a week ago, a week ago today. Uh, so back on February 5th, I think it was. And uh, survivors that we're working uh, with will be called to testify before the committee this week. So we're doing a lot of work sort of behind the scenes with survivors and then also with the MPs on that committee to help them hear from the right people and experts. We're writing briefs, we're getting other people to write briefs. And so that's some of the kind of work that we do with government. Uh, we also raise awareness, so another A word, and uh, educate on this issue. People can't take action on something, right, until they know what the core issues are around this. And so we uh, have a curriculum for youth that we developed, uh, social media videos. We do a couple of different kinds of awareness raising events. And um, so finally, the last A word is aid. We simply provide funding for survivors as they apply to us uh, through, ser uh, through service providers or churches. And for instance, last year, we were able to help over 30 women uh, with over $60,000 uh, in 2020. 
Abigail is a young friend of mine. She actually doesn't live too far from Binbrook. And when she was a young girl, she was sexually abused by, uh, by a family member. And her family uh, clearly was dysfunctional. There was lots of domestic violence that took place in her home. And she felt like she had nobody to turn to about the rape experiences that she was facing uh, as a very a young child. By the time she was 11, she was sadly uh, suicidal and her normal soon became that of rotating in and out of different foster homes and finally being out on her own at the young age of 16. Very soon after, of course, she found herself out of money and with the only means of survival, at least in her mind, of selling herself so that she could eat and pay the rent. Well, it wasn't long before a pimp manipulated her into working for him at local strip clubs. She was 19, hooked on drugs, regularly beaten and controlled by her pimp, being sold nightly to men again and again. And she felt completely vulnerable and hopeless and helpless. Well, Abigail's story has a, a striking similarity to someone else that we see in the Old Testament. Her name was Hagar. Now, before you think I'm preaching heresy, uh, absolutely, Hagar was not a prostitute. However, she was exploited for numerous vulnerabilities. And I really think that the two women, my friend Abigail and Hagar, have got so much in common that I think we need to uh, jump into this story to see what God's plan uh, would be for, um, for women who are bought and sold here in our, in our country. And I hope as we explore this passage this morning that we're really going to, to understand God's heart for the vulnerable. So if you've got your Bibles with you, great. You can turn with me to Genesis 16, Genesis 1-6. I'm going to read to you the passage of scripture from the New Living Translation. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had not been able to bear children for him, but she had an Egyptian servant named Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, the Lord has prevented me from having children. Go and sleep with my servant. Perhaps I can have a child through her. And Abram agreed with Sarai's proposal. So Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian servant, and gave her to Abram as a wife. This happened 10 years after Abram had settled in the land of Canaan. So Abram had sexual relations with Hagar. She became pregnant. But when Hagar knew she was pregnant, she began to treat her mistress, Sarai, with contempt. Then Sarai said to Abram, this is all your fault. I put my servant into your arms, but now that she's pregnant, she treats me with contempt. The Lord will show who is wrong, you or me. Abram re replied, look, she is your servant, so deal with her as you see fit. Then Sarai treated Hagar so harshly that she finally ran away. The angel of the Lord found Hagar beside a spring of water in the wilderness along the road to Shur. The angel said to her, Hagar, Sarai's servant, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she replied. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her authority. Then he added, I will give you more descendants than you can count. And the angel also said, you are now pregnant and will give birth to a son. You are to name him Ishmael, which means God hears. For the Lord has heard your cry of distress. This son of yours will be a wild man as untamed as a wild donkey. He will raise his fist against everyone 
and everyone will be against him. Yes, he will live in hope, open hostility against all his relatives. Thereafter, Hagar used another name to refer to the Lord who had spoken to her. She said, you are the God who sees me. She also said, have I truly seen the one who sees me? So that well was named Bir Lahai Roy, which means well of the living one who sees me. And it can still be found between Kadesh and Bereth. So Hagar gave Abram a son and Abram named him Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Ishmael was born. So we have this uh, wonderful story which starts with three main characters. We have got Sarai and Abram, who we're pretty familiar with from uh, previous chapters in Genesis, uh, um, leading up to this account. And then, of course, we've got Hagar, who is their servant. Now, Abram is the heir to the covenant, all that God has promised to his people, for his followers. This covenant was, prom was passed down, uh, was to be passed down through his line of descendants. But this is where we have this a significant problem. And that is the fact that Sarai, his wife, has not been able to give him any children. She can't get pregnant. And here they are now, senior citizens, and there's just, there's no babies. So she is really uh, doubting God's promise to them. So she decides, I'm going to take matters in my own hand. hands. She suggests to Abraham that he should, or Abram, that he should sleep with her servant. And maybe that's the plan that God had for them. So she jumps in, uh, creating her own solution uh, to try to make God's promise come true. So poor Sarai, you know, my heart really does go out to her. Uh, if we look back into history, we, we see that Assyrian marriage laws, so that's uh, the culture in which they were living, the land in which they were living, uh, did stipulate that if a wife was not able to bear children within the first two years of marriage, she could purchase a slave woman for her husband. The slave woman would have the husband's baby, but the baby would actually be the property, the child of, of the slave owner. So I get it, the pressure is on. This is the culture around her has come up with this kind of solution, uh, but she desperately wants to have her own child. She wants God's promise to be, tr be true. Verse three, we see that Sarai took Hagar, the Egyptian servant, and gave her to Abram as a wife. So she is offering this second wife, just like the Assyrian marriage law said, in the form of her slave to her husband. Now, let's think about this for a second, right? They, they are followers of God, but she's choosing an idolater from a pagan country because Hagar is from Egypt to be the bearer of the promised descendant. And again, I think this decision is just made from a place of pain in her own heart and really not thinking it through. But what do we do about Abram? Abram in verse four complies with Sarai's suggestion and sleeps with Hagar. And it's interesting to me to note the words that were used in verse three, where it says, Sarai took Hagar and gave her to Abram. Those are the exact same words that we see Eve used when she took the apple and gave it to Adam. And I think that the author of this passage uh, was trying to make it very clear that Sarai's plan for a descendant was her own doings, and it really was not God's. So Abram takes Hagar uh, without God's consent or blessing, and that is the backdrop of this story uh, where we first meet Hagar. Um, so who is Hagar? 
who is this slave girl of Sarai's? Well, the first obvious thing that we know about her clearly is that she is a woman. She was born female into a strong patriarchal culture where she is primarily valued for her reproductive capacity and very little else. Second thing we know about her is that she is Egyptian, right? She's a foreigner, an outsider. But how in the world did she get there? How did they come to possess her? Well, back in Genesis 12, we read the story of Abram and Sarai traveling to Egypt because of a famine in Canaan. And Sarai is so beautiful that Abram tells her to lie to Pharaoh, uh, telling him that Sarai was his sister instead of his wife so that um, they wouldn't kill Abram and take Sarai for themselves. Verse 16 in Genesis 12 says that Pharaoh gave Abram many gifts uh, because of her sheep, goats, cattle, male and female servants, uh, donkeys, camels, all of that. So it is likely that Hagar was that was given to the couple at that point in time. So that leads us to the third thing that we know about her. She was a servant, a slave. She is listed there with all the livestock. She's simply something to be owned. Can you imagine the horror at her young age of being lined up with all that livestock and being told that she was going to be sent far from her family, far from everything familiar to live with this family in a land she'd never heard of or been to. Uh, that would be challenging. Hagar was trapped in a system, a system that stripped her of her rights, of her freedom, even of her dignity. She was simply human property and she didn't even lay claim, couldn't lay claim to her own body. What would it have been like to learn that she was to be the surrogate mother to her master's baby. That she was really just nothing more than Sarai's last chance at motherhood. And that even this baby that she would carry for those nine months would not be hers to keep. Notice even how scripture says that Sarai and Abram talk about her. They never ever use her name. She's my servant or your servant. They don't ever call her Hagar. She was truly without value and without rights, alone and totally vulnerable to however it was that they wanted to use her. In verse four of the story, we do find out that in fact, yes, she is pregnant and she sort of uses that to one up her mistress, right? She's finally got this leverage and she, she clearly must have gloated around Sarai because all sorts of trouble breaks out in that house. Sarai goes to Abram for help. He basically washes his hands of it. He does not stick up for Hagar, this woman who is carrying his child. He doesn't offer her protection. And he actually gives Sarai permission to do whatever she wants to Hagar. And that results in some terrible treatment. In verse six, we read that Sarai treats her harshly. And in the original language, that actually means she was abusive and treated her with violence. And it gets so bad that poor Hagar runs away. So let's put the pause button, push the pause button on our Genesis story and compare Hagar's vulnerabilities and her realities with the realities and vulnerabilities of the exploited in our country. First of all, exploited individuals in our, in our country are mostly female, female. And while boys and men can be exploited and those numbers are certainly increasing, this is typically a very gendered issue. Girls and women are the most vulnerable in our country for exploitation. 
And just like Hagar experienced, women are at risk of violence 10 times more often than men. The highest risk group for uh, sexual exploitation, the most vulnerable in Canada are Indigenous women and girls, children in government care, new Canadians, uh, and those um, with disabilities. One thing that made Hagar extremely vulnerable was her foreign origin, right? She didn't fit in the same way. She did not have rights. And sadly, the list of vulnerable people that I just mentioned uh, here in our country are often those that don't quite fit. The average age for the first time of being exploited in Canada is only 13 and a half. Children are vulnerable. Sadly, racism is alive and well here. And those at the bottom of the prostitution hierarchy are those who are seen to be at the lowest social or racial order. Abigail's parents were new Canadians. Abigail ended up as a child in government care. Abigail had no way to make ends meet. She was poor. All those vulnerabilities were in place for an exploiter to come and take advantage of. And every single uh, survivor woman I know was exploited because some or all of these vulnerabilities were in play. So let's go back to our Genesis story and turn our focus now to the good part of the story. Let's see what God does do for Hagar, what he can do for us, and what he wants us to do for the Hagars that are in our world. Well, we left Hagar fleeing for safety uh, from Sarai in verse 6. In verse 7, we see that she was found by the angel of the Lord beside a spring of water in, on the way to Shur. And if you look at a map, that's at the southern tip of Canaan. So you know what I think? I think she was heading back to Egypt. She was going back to what was familiar to her home. In verse 7, the very first thing that I uh, take note of is that the angel of the Lord found her. He was looking for her. The God of the universe was fully aware of the kind of suffering that she was enduring, her poor station in life. In fact, in verse 8, I love this, he calls her Hagar. He uses her name. He knows it. Sarai and Abram had never bothered to use her name, but he does. And he identifies that, yes, in fact, she is Sarai's slave. They, and he knows full well uh, where she's come from, where she's going, and all of these things. But he still asks questions, right? He wants to draw her out. Hagar matters to God. This was absolutely not some chance meeting out in the middle of a desert. This meeting completely transforms Hagar. God tells Hagar, go back to your mistress, go back to Sarai. In spite of all the mistreatment, go back and have this baby that God is now promising to her he will make into a great nation. And so we see this total turnaround from this poor, lonely, lost, uh, hurting, pregnant young girl to a woman who's able to go back and face this mistress, to go back and face her abuser. She goes back with dignity. She goes back in confidence. Hagar remarkably gives God a name in verse 13. Now, do you realize that nobody else in scripture has ever been able to do this? We don't see this anywhere else. She calls him El Roy, the God who sees me. Her most basic of theological convictions is, is simple. God sees me. And she knows that she's not invisible to him. She actually matters 
to him. Prior to this encounter with Hagar, we see uh, in the Old Testament, we see God spoken of as Elohim, the great creator God, or El Shaddai, the almighty God, or Yahweh, the great I am. And those, of course, are accurate uh, and grandiose descriptions of who God is. But isn't it something that it's lowly Hagar, the servant slave girl, who introduces us to the intimate God, the God who sees us, the God who knows everything about us, the God who wonderfully cares for us. Hagar, this unimportant slave girl who is used by her owners, has this encounter with the living God and she is changed. No matriarchs in Abraham's family have this kind of encounter with God. We don't, we don't see Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel have these kinds of encounters, only Hagar. And I think it's a beautiful story that shows us how much God cares for women. God cares for abused and broken women women who the rest of society has cast off. Even the name that God gives her son, Ishmael, means God hears. It's, it's so significant. They are valuable to him. God loves the exploited. He is intimately aware of the pain, the abuse, the brokenness, everything that has gone on in their lives. He sees them and he's with them in it. Through the years as I've worked with sexually exploited women, those that have, have experienced God's deep healing have all told me the same thing. And it's such a beautiful thing. And that is this, that until they came to the realization that God was with them, he was beside them during those terrible times of abuse, of rape, of humiliation. He was experiencing it with them. Until they could see him in that picture, they couldn't find healing. And as one of them said to me, he was right there beside me, weeping with me. He is the God who sees us and knows our pain, who loves us. He's right there. He's right in the middle of it with us. So if this is God's response to Hagar, if he sees vulnerable people with so much value, he went out of his way to go and find her in the desert. He loves her. He didn't condemn her. Does he not see our pain too? So if you're, if you're here this morning, you're sitting in your living room listening to this, and you're identifying with some kind of pain that's similar to Hagar's, perhaps there's been some abuse that's been done to you, or there's some way in which you feel like you don't belong, you don't really fit. I want you to hear this this morning. I don't want you to miss it. That El Roy, El Roy, the God who sees, is here to meet you in your pain too, because there's nothing too big, no pain that's too great, no trauma that you've experienced that he does not see in which he was not present. He is there. He's ready to heal and to care for you. Are you running away from some kind of pain just like Hagar did? Know that our God will find you. He's calling you by name. He wants to meet you right in the middle of the pain. Isaiah 49, 16 says, see, I've written your name on the palms of my hands. Psalm 56, 8 says, you keep track of all my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. El Roy is intimately acquainted with our lives. 
So as I contemplate God's response to Hagar, I ask myself, how should I be responding to vulnerable people around me? What is God wanting me to do? What does he want us to do as we become aware of the Hagars that are all around us? Is he asking us to enter into their broken world? You know, in the past few years, we've helped over 100 women uh, with job retraining, uh, tattoo removal, many get branded by their pimps, which serve as a constant reminder of their exploitation. We've helped with medical needs, trauma counseling, first and last month's rent, debt repayment, you name it, we have helped with it. And we're able to do this because of generous donations from people all across our country. Uh, I'm not familiar with what your church is doing there in your own community. I hope that you're involved in some way with vulnerable in individuals. We always want to bring dignity. We always want to treat them as God, as people that are made in God's image. We always want to show them value. Well, I want to end by telling you the rest of Abigail's story. Thankfully, her story does not end in a Toronto strip club. One day, her pimp had locked her up in her room and she was searching YouTube uh, for music to calm her down. He had beaten her badly and had locked her in a room. And of all things, she stumbled across a Chris Tomlin worship song. She was drawn to it and immediately it calmed her down and she was able to fall asleep. Well, a few weeks later, she found herself fleeing from her for her life from her pimp who had yet again violently beat her when she walked past a church or ran past a church. Now it happened to be Good Friday and the sign out front said, Jesus is here, all are welcome. And immediately her mind went back to the Chris Tomlin song that talked about Jesus and she was drawn inside. She heard the message of Jesus' love his death on the cross for her. And when the pastor ended with come back for the rest of the story on Easter Sunday morning, uh, she was so disappointed. She ran down to the front of the church and uh, said, I, I, need, I need to know more. She came back Easter Sunday morning. She met with the pastor. She could hardly wait for him to finish preaching. And he was able to lead her to Christ and, in fact, helped her call her pimp to say she was never coming back. But he did even more than that. He took her in, checked with his wife first, of course, but they took her into their home uh, where they cared for her physical needs, her mental needs, her spiritual needs, and really helped her uh, in those early months of recovery and of learning more about Jesus. Well, that's a number of years ago now. There certainly have been bumps on the road in her recovery journey, but she still is loving Jesus. She's now, of all things, in law school, wanting to become a lawyer to help other girls just like her. Abby discovered El Roy, the God who sees her, and she has never been the same since. That, my friends, is what God does. He meets us exactly where we are. He sees us and loves us no matter what. He is in the middle of our messy lives. So please know that there is no pain, no sin, no trauma that you've experienced that is too hard for him to help you with. Abigail knows it. Many of my survivor friends know it. He is right there with us, sometimes even weeping alongside of us. He knows what it means to suffer. The great almighty God 
longs for intimacy with us. He pursues us. He reaches out for us. And he finds us even when there is no other way. So, my friends, listen to his voice. Follow him where he leads you. Because the God who sees us and knows us will always make a way for us. Thank you so much for listening. And uh, yeah, I wish I could be there with you in person. But thanks for the opportunity to be with you today. And I'm just going to close really quickly in prayer. Lord Jesus, I pray for uh, whoever has been on the other end listening to this. I ask Jesus that you would uh, truly be Elroy uh, to the people that are listening. I pray that you would continue to show yourself strong, uh, to show you yourself as a faithful friend, as someone who is there to care for us in our deepest needs. Lord, I also pray that this little congregation there in Bimbrook would really be able to reach out and minister to those Hagars in their community. And so we just ask that you would guide them and lead them in all of that. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thanks. Thanks for letting me be with you.